Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Book Leads Impactful Books for Life and Leadership. I'm your series host and leadership performance coach, John Jeremillo. This podcast series is about getting to the books that have impacted the lives of people in my network, um, people that I've known for a while, or friends, new friends, new colleagues, just anybody that's out there just creating and designing a great environment for us all. I want to pick their brains about the books that have made uh, the most impact in their lives or contributed to their lives or books that they've put out much for the same reason, to figure out the value, to have them share that with us uh, in this series. The way that I do it, as you might have heard before, is I have three categories of books. So it's one that they may be sharing with me that I haven't read, a book that we've both read, whether specifically for the series or from a previous life, or that I am lucky enough to bring on the publisher and or author to, sh to, to share about their value, what the writing process was, what they learned about themselves, and what that message is that they want to get to their audience. So for this particular episode, my guest uh, will be Jim Frawley. And Jim is the founder of Bellwether, an executive development community dedicated to helping both individuals and organizations build resiliency, adapt to change, and thrive in rapidly shifting contexts. Jim provides a range of services, including keynote speaking, executive and business coaching, and workshop development and facilitation. He's the author of Adapting in Motion, Finding Your Place in the New Economy, and host of the Bellwether Hub podcast, where he's building a library of resources across those books and across um, his podcast for teams and individuals to continually develop themselves. He has worked with clients in eight countries and 39 states to date to create and implement change management, corporate training, and strategic planning programs, as well as organizational redesigns. His specialties include executive communication, self-efficacy and accountability, and preparing for change when we don't know what change is coming. That is what I find valuable, uh, especially valuable. And Jim and I met when he had heard about the podcast, what I was doing with the podcast, what I was trying to learn from my, from my guests. We got to know a little bit about each other, and uh, here we are. So I'm, I'm curious to pick Jim's brain, especially because it has to do, um, Jim, out of all the work that you've done, obviously what you put into a book is maybe the pinnacle of what you're working with at that moment, like what's really important. So when I hear adaptability, I'm all for it just because obviously of the mess that we've all been in the last couple of years coming out of hopefully. So I'm very glad and happy to have you here as a guest. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So before we get into it, I usually want to just get a sense for, I, I did read your bio, obviously, uh, but what does the work look like that you do? What what are some of the, the the services that you deliver? What is, I listed what they are, but what is what does your day-to-day -day look like? Yeah, it sounds, and it, it sounds like a lot, but at the same time, it's almost, you know, when you hear the word coach, it's coaches are a dime a dozen. So it's really, you know, everybody kind of does the same thing. My, my work, it's really exciting because it's based on my time in corporate. Um, there is a fundamental change happening in the workplace where we are completely rewriting the, the game book on how to get your people, what your people strategy is, how to get your executives ready, how do they respond. It was really informed by my time in corporate during the financial crisis. I was doing executive communications for the banks. So you learned in the moment, baptism by fire what it really took for an executive to be successful. So what the day-to-day -day looks like for me is, one, I've got my clients getting ready for the C-suite. They're walking into the C-suite. They're ready to go. Two is working with leadership teams and executive teams on what's the people strategy for the organization going forward? 
and we are ripping the Band-Aid on a lot of the normal assumptions that we would normally make. So what does a people strategy really mean? What does the workplace really look like for you? What do we fundamentally need to change? And we have those kind of deep conversations and implement a, a new people strategy. And then the fun stuff is the workshops that we do with our people just to kind of get them to, to figure out their own selves and, and really rewrite the script on what learning and development means in corporate. Can you share a little bit about your podcast? Yeah, so the podcast started, I, I had a brief period of my life when I was a radio host and I had a talk show down in Washington, DC. It was syndicated in a few states and I loved it. It was my favorite job I've ever had, but I paid no money. And so I, had, I couldn't do it. <laughs> and now that we've got the technology, I guess it was about four years ago now, I, I ponied up and I bought myself my little uh, my little Zoom recorder and um, I said, screw it, I'll just do it and I'll do it for fun. And um, it's evolved a little bit over time. Sometimes I had guests and then I stopped doing guests and then I started doing just kind of 15 minute things for quick. And then I started doing the longer conversations. And so um, really I go where the wind blows for whatever my clients really want to hear or ask to listen to everything from, and usually what's going on in the world is what really drives it. So the pandemic yeah. was very big on mental health and, you know, things like, why did I quit drinking and things like, you know, what did uh, a triathlon teach me about depression and all of these types of things all the way now to how are you adapting to change when you don't know what change is coming? How are you preparing for that? Um, how do you have difficult conversations in the workplace? Like all of those, those types of things. So to get a better understanding of who you are and what you put into the work that you're doing today, what is it that started you on your path into your career? Uh, in many cases, it's not that first step wasn't what led was it intentionally what the person wanted to lead to this, to what they're doing now? But what was that first path, whether it was family that kind of put you on a path to get to now, whether it was education, you know, by chance, what did your, what did your path into whether it was education in terms of college, when you started into your career, what was, what, what did that look like? Uh, yeah. So when I started into my career, I really just went where the wind took me. Um, had no real direction on what I wanted to do. It was always that thing where I could say, oh, I can do this job, so let me apply for it. And then you go through the cycle, you start for six months, you're really motivated, and then you get kind of a little disgruntled and that turns into burnout. And after about two to three years, you're like, screw this, I'm gonna do something else. And you start Googling and say, well, oh, I could do that job. And the, yeah. the cycle continues. Um, and that's just kind of how it went. I, I graduated college, I got one job that uh, my sister was able to hook me up with. and that was in corporate training and I did some corporate training and didn't like it. That got me stuck in Omaha, Nebraska. So the only way to get back <laughs> to the East coast was to join a financial firm. It was one of three companies out there that had a presence on the East coast. And that just snowballed into a career in finance where I learned a lot. Right. And I didn't realize all of the things that I was learning. And then eventually I kind of had enough and I, I was speaking to my now wife and she recommended I go to a coach and heard that Columbia University had a coaching program. I said, that's it, right? And I started to take accountability for what I actually wanted to do. And uh, and that was the little spark. And once I did that, it was just off to the races. What uh, did you happen to go to school for? Uh, communications and media studies was my undergrad. Okay. And then I've got an MBA and I've got, um, which I didn't get until after I was 40. Um, so I just waited on that. I did it during the pandemic because I was bored. Um, and, uh, and then good I use of to, time though. Good use of time. Right. I had to do something. Right. So yeah. one, I wrote a book and when the book was done, I went and just kind of online did my MBA simply because I didn't need it. Um, 
you know, I, I kind of went to the school of learning your MBA in business mm. and I learned a lot of it, um, more than I, I would have learned if I had gone to do an MBA at that, at that time. It wasn't, it just wouldn't have been a, a good use of money or time for me. But then I also went back to school about eight years ago for my executive coaching certification, which was okay. part business school, part teachers college at Columbia. Uh, and it was, it was excellent. So what did you, you said, uh, communications for college. What made you go into that? I had wanted to work in radio. Okay. And I had done competitive public speaking when I was younger. I really wanted to go to a university that had a radio station. And that was kind of where I wanted to go. I didn't really have the guts to tell my parents that's what I wanted to do, but I was sneakily trying to put that in. I actually started in business and it was a disaster, um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, and I just didn't care enough to really do it. So I had switched majors over to communications because it was more in line with what I actually wanted to do. And it worked. Turned out did you okay. say, did you say competitive speaking when you were uh, young? Yeah, I did competitive public speaking. I was a stud muffin in high school. Um, well, how does that happen? Like, how do you get into that? Or what, what are we talking about here? It was, um, it's called forensics and it's, um, not dead bodies. It's, <laughs> uh, it's competitive speech and debate. And I wanted to play baseball in high school. I didn't have the guts to try out. I was a little intimidated. And so my mother said, you have to join something. And she really kind of pushed me towards the, the public speaking. We had the premier, this high school had the premier public speaking program wow. in the country at that point. Um, and it, this is a thousands of kids around the country compete. And uh, we had a phenomenal coach and it was the best thing I could have done was to do this. We traveled around the country. We learned about you know, how to really become adults, how to take care of ourselves. We learned how to speak in public. We learned, I mean, the speaking in public was almost secondary to everything else that we had learned throughout the whole process. So for four years, I competed nationally in competitive public speaking. And this is high school, right? High school. Yes. Wow. So, and then, wow, just like so much there, but. I know that through a massive curveball <laughs> no and and you as you kept telling me something i kept jumping back wait so what'd you go to school for wait did you say public you know competitive public speaking but that's amazing that a kid a young person can get that skill that young um because i mean as you can probably imagine just from your work it the the hiccups that most people encounter is is there are external factors, but so much of it is just from them not being able to express what they want. And that's what blows me away is how often people have the tools within themselves when you're coaching them, but they just don't know how to articulate it, how to share it with other people. So for someone of that age in high school to get um, that kind of exposure and to consider it like, okay, if you're not going to go into baseball, then you got to do something. So, okay, speaking. But I think that's such a valuable tool at that point. I think, and what I really like about that is most people, when they think about public speaking, they think about the audience and how people are afraid to speak in front of an audience. Yeah, but yeah. much more important than that is exactly what you just said, is how do you articulate an idea? Yeah. How do you formulate a, a process of bringing someone along? Communication isn't just yes. saying something out. Yes. It's understanding that the audience or understanding that the audience understands you and how do you package something in a way that they can pick it up yes. and communicate back in, and, in your unique way, in, in your, your unique. Way. Yeah. Cause people always ask me, they, they bust me. They're like, you always, you've always written and, and talked about how you're an introvert. And then we see you on this podcast and you're talking and talking, or you give a talk at the university over here. So, so what's the deal? You, you can't be both. 
I'm like, yeah, you can be because when yeah. I'm getting up there, I'm not like you just said, Jim, I'm not there for the audience. You know, obviously I am. I've been invited to present for whatever, but it's because I want to express something in my way, in my unique way. Everybody has like a unique voice or insight. So when I'm speaking in front of people, I see the value in that exchange because there is an exchange. But at the very start, very firstly, as the foundation is that expression of what it is I want to share with them. So that's the way I view it. And that gets me over that hump of being an introvert and not having that energy. My message pumps me up. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand about introversion and extroversion is extroverts get their energy from a crowd. Yes. Introverts don't. They get their energy from something else. And that's your kind of energy of saying, this is how I'll communicate almost to each individual in that audience, where it's a very different way to approach a speech or a presentation or communication. Uh, but it's incredibly effective if you're yeah, able to do it. Absolutely. Jim, before we dive into your book, I always ask, um, or I started asking, should have asked from, you know, episode zero or zero uh, or episode one, what does leadership mean to you? Yeah, uh, that's such a good question. Um, and what I, what I say is what does leadership mean to me? Well, people ask usually for the definition of leadership. And I would say it depends on the individual. And so it's a subjective view mm -hmm. of how uh, an individual can make the people around them better. Like and that. that's ultimately what leadership comes down to is how are you making the people around you better? Um, we only follow people who make us better. Yeah. I love that you point out specifically that it's subjective. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that you can customize it, that it doesn't look the same from one person to the next. Um, you know, it's not cookie cutter. It depends on what kind of tools, temperament, just everything across the board for that person and, and what they can utilize. So I appreciate that. You say it really does depend on the person because that's key. Yeah, it drives me nuts when you see the, you know, these are the 10 behaviors of good leaders or this is the, you know, to be a good mm. leader, you have to be this. And it's absolute nonsense. I've seen a really effective good leaders who don't exhibit the standard behaviors that we would all expect to see, but they're incredibly good. They make their people better. They do it potentially in a very harsh environment. Maybe they create a harsh environment, but that's okay because everybody's on board and, um, and so ultimately, it's when you look at the people in your charge, each one of those needs a bespoke solution to become better. And your ability as a leader and a manager and whatever else you know title you want to put on it, you're ultimately making those people bring out their best so that it's easy to follow you and bring the value that you want them to bring. Yeah. See, see I love you that you didn't go with a cookie cutter response to what is leadership and that you mentioned, yeah, you know, these lists kind of drive you nuts. Anytime I post a list or write about a list or present a list, I say, listen, this is my approach to it in this moment. This is what I'm thinking in this moment. This is not cookie cutter. It doesn't work for everybody. Pick and choose what might work for you, you know, what resonates with you. But I love the fact that you bring up that it's not cookie cutter. It evolves. And, and especially, again, in this particular moment of what you're answering, just that it always depends on who the person is and, and what the circumstances are. Right. Context is so important for any any definition of leadership. So the context Absolutely. really drives the scenario. Absolutely. So why don't we jump into your uh, your book, Jim? What Can you introduce it? And then um, you had mentioned the pandemic. That's when you wrote it. Uh, but if you could introduce it and then what led up to this book being out there, maybe how long you've been thinking about it. I've spoken to people that have been thinking about books for years. So whatever it was that led up to the book, if you could share, that'd be great. Sure. It's um, it's called Adapting in Motion, 
finding a place in the new economy. And this was a project years in the making, although I wasn't really intentional about writing the book until later. Um, I had been traveling so much and I knew I wanted to write a book. I didn't know what it was going to be. And so whenever I was in an airport or on a plane, I would just kind of jot down ideas and, and write a bunch. And a lot of it was mostly me complaining about what other people should be doing. <laughs> um, and as I went back to look at it, when I sat down and said, I'm going to write a book, I went back and read it. I said, this is terrible. This is not, <laughs> not the way that, <laughs> you know, I've learned so much since I had written these down. But pandemic hit. And I probably had about 50 to 100 pages written of just notes. Um, and now was it, can I just jump in? Was it, was it already along the adaptability vein or was it because of the pandemic that you kind of pivoted in the messaging? It was, so the notes that I had were more about my frustrations, which probably informed some of the way that you can adapt. So it wasn't, when I'd written the notes, it wasn't about how to prepare for change and all that stuff. When I sat down and said, what's the book I want to write? I didn't come up with a title until almost towards the end. Okay. where I just kind of started formulating these ideas and what's important right now and what's the message that I really want people to get. And that's when it became, how do you prepare for change when you don't know what change is coming? Um, and I had the pandemic and I sat down every morning. I got up at three o'clock in the morning and just wrote um, because, you know, and all my clients had put everything on pause because they didn't know where they go in the office, were they not? Most of my client meetings were in person. So I had a good couple months until they figured themselves out before they came back. Mm -hmm. And so I just sat down and just started crunching. I needed something to do. And I wrote and wrote and wrote, organized and wrote, organized, wrote, scratched. And um, eventually it just kind of came through where I needed a process. Change management is a process. Mm -hmm. Responding and preparing for change is a process. And so what did I learn from my time in corporate? Uh, what advice would I have given to other people? What changes had I made in my own particular life? Uh, that was beneficial to me responding to this pandemic, which was fundamental change to everything that we were going. And then how do I bring people on that arc so that when the next big thing hits, they're ready to respond however it is that they can respond. So just to get into your head a little, how do you even take what you've done in corporate because, and then jump to a pandemic, something that's many of us haven't seen in our lifetimes like, how do you, how do you make that? That's, that seems like such an exponential jump. It's like, so where I can just imagine all the notes that you might've just kind of jotted down everywhere about how to, how to adapt at that, at that level. Yeah. So what I found was, um, I guess I got lucky in two ways. One, I just had, as I was writing, I had this just broad kind of lightning strike of, you know, every change management program fails, but Mac, it's because they focus on the change and mm -hmm. macro change requires a focus on the micro individual mm -hmm. because no matter what change is going, change is a distraction. So ultimately it's the one individual who's got to be accountable to themselves to make the decisions they have to make. We don't want to do it. They're difficult, but that was a nice realization for me. As I was looking at my particular situation at the beginning of the pandemic, thank God I had made this choice before. Thank God I had made this choice before I had quit drinking like two, two years before that. And I had, you know, and everybody was drinking so much in the pandemic because they didn't know what they were doing and everything else. So there were all these decisions that I had made that really cued me up to be able to respond well to the pandemic where I almost took it in stride. So that was nice. The other thing, I had a realization probably two years after I launched my business where I was putting together my annual goals. And there were two things. One, I had to forget everything that I had learned in corporate in order to make my business successful. 
because it was really limiting the way I thought about things. Mm -hmm. That was one. And then two, uh, I needed to find a voice. I realized I didn't have an opinion or a voice on the way things I was supposed to operate. I was still waiting at being a, a, a reactive, passive observer to everything going on. Whereas in order to be an active adapter, you actually have to have an opinion on where to go. You have to have a belief system on what it is you actually believe. And most people don't have it. They think they do. Most people don't have a belief system in place to say, yes, I believe this. And I would argue the most people, you don't have a belief mm. system until you can understand why someone would believe something different. And that's a difficult process to go through. In terms oh, yeah. Of, you know, what do I believe? Do you everything from who's the greatest basketball player to do you believe in God to what's the best way to parent your kids? Like all of these things we get hit all the time. Most of the time, we're just spitting back what we've heard. Mm -hmm. We haven't taken the time to say, well, do I actually believe this? Why do I believe it? Why don't I believe it? Is it okay to not believe it? And give ourselves that license to kind of go through that. And when you start getting philosophical in terms of what you believe and what you want your voice to be, all of a sudden, when something like a pandemic hits, you've got that elevated view to say, all right, this was a lesson at the time. Now I can realize how it translates back to, to the current situation. Yeah. And as you were talking about um, people not knowing themselves or not really knowing their beliefs or just kind of sometimes my, my word regurgitating what they see out there, maybe the, the closest thing that they can relate to or see around them. I mean, the pandemic was just full of so much of that. You know, obviously the politics of it didn't help, um, but it's just amazing when when people just kind of hold on to something or there's groupthink. You know, we I think we saw a lot of that groupthink during the pandemic politically, again, politically charged um, versus people really understanding themselves and leading with, again, going back to what I discussed about the about speaking, your uniqueness, your unique voice. And I love how you had to say you wanted to figure out what yours was instead of kind of going with the lessons of, of things that were already established by corporate environments, you know, maybe things you came up with in that process you had to kind of evolve and think differently to move forward. And I just, yeah, that's, it's something that we're not taught. No, we're not. And it's, um, or, or we're taught because we're told, but we don't feel it. The big challenge that most people have in responding to a pandemic or presenting a political idea or any of this is really at the crux of it, insecurity. They're insecure that someone's going to figure them out that they don't actually know what they're talking about, which is why most political arguments end in shouting matches because they, mm -hmm. they don't want you to get too close. It's fear. They don't want to admit that they're wrong. And when you start to explore your belief system, this new curiosity comes up where you could say, you know what, if I want to believe X, Republican or Democrat, how could I understand that the other side could believe something else? And until you can convince yourself that it's a valid argument, it's almost creating a new filter. Uh, the first when someone comes to you, the first filter is, is what they're saying valid or how is it valid? Mm. And when you give validity to someone else, all of a sudden you say, oh, OK, I see where this person's coming from. And then the pressure's off. You're not just it's not me versus them. And it's not this full kind of conversation debate. Um, it's more of an exploration of, oh, OK, that's interesting. Tell me more about what you believe and I'll tell you what I believe, because a belief isn't truth. Mm. And we often make that mistake. If you believe something is right, it doesn't necessarily make it true. There are very few truths in life. We just have beliefs. And so as we sit there and we can believe something, those beliefs should be malleable over time. That's what growing up in maturity and, you know, we go, we were told something as children, adulthood is figuring out what those answers are for ourselves and exploring the thinking for ourselves. And we haven't quite frankly been taught how to think. 
Did you have kids, lot. Jim? I do. I have two kids. They're, they're the ones who started me down the thinking kind of path. If I get one more question from them that I can't answer, it's <laughs> frustrating. So, so how do you, how old are your kids? Uh, five, almost six and one and a half. Okay. So, well, the one and a half year old is kind of like, they're going to do whatever they're going to do, but how do you, and I, I jump into this in, in, in these episodes where I'm just curious about the lessons that the professional, the specialist in front of me uh, has in their life, what they're sharing with me. It's like, I'm always curious because I think it's a two pronged approach working with adults to kind of reprogram themselves to get to what they're supposed to be doing or believing or seeing. And then it's like, how do you, how do you impart that on your kids? How do you bring kids up to think in that manner? So I was just curious where you, where you may be in that conversation with your kids. And people may say, well, you heard his kids ages. Like there's no way that that's coming up at that point. But I mean, I've had conversations with my like, you know, my seven year old now, but for years, you don't use the same language the way you and I would speak to each other, but you kind of get them thinking in a certain way. So I'm just curious whether or not you already have or you intend to. It's like, how do you how do you imagine sharing with them that this, the the importance of them establishing their own voice? Yeah, it's um, it's incredibly difficult. And the questions that come out of kids mouths are. I mean, I've gotten questions about God from her when she was like three years old. You know, what is God and everything else? And um, and how do you really answer that in terms of because you've got your belief system, mm. but you also, you know, as you sit there, it challenges your belief system. You say, wait a minute, I'm about to tell this to my kid. And is yeah. that even real? Like, it sounds ridiculous when you put it in kid's voice. Um, <laughs> like, do I really believe this? And if you don't believe yeah. it. Then you sit there and say, I'm not going to lie to my kid. You know, you want to build trust with your children. You want to do that. Granted, they're five. But I'm also not going to sit there and just kick a can down the road to say, oh, yes, it's this. And then when she's 10, come back and say, oh, well, I was just saying that because you were five. And now I'm 10, telling you this because you're 10. And then they come back at 16 and say, well, I told you that when you were 10. And this is what it is when you're 16. The story can't change over time. Yeah. And so you want something that you're comfortable discussing. You want something where they can express their ideas and you want to create an environment where they can ask really good questions. We don't learn by being told. We learn by asking questions. And I have this theory, and I don't know if it's true or not, but the reason kids are so happy is because they're constantly learning, mm. right? They've got awe and wonder. They're asking questions. What yeah. does it mean? Why is this? The reason adults are so miserable is because we have all the answers. We've got all the assumptions and we're defending things that we don't actually believe. We're just mm -hmm. repeating back things, and this is why it is, and stop asking questions and move on. The, the adults that learn, the adults that learn to ask questions, that take on new projects, that go back to school, those are the ones have, who have this crazy energy and mm. excitement around the possibility that they're learning something new and that something new is possible. And so when we're creating an environment at home, we want, and my wife and I have talked about this a lot, I want my daughter to grow up in a place where she can tell us anything, where she can ask us anything. Yeah. Regardless, no matter what, you know, we'll, we'll never say that it's wrong. It's a question that you've got. And we want now we're not great at it. We make mistakes, of course, all the time. Uh, but that's the the environment that we wish to do so that uh, so that our daughter and our son can can grow up with with good questions and be good thinkers. Yeah. Yeah. So and, and very much for the same reason I explained before, adults where we are reprogramming, trying to relearn and then kids, you know, how do we lay the path out for them? It's amazing how, 
yeah, we we lose that wonder. I love that you use that word. It's one that's come up here before when talking about kids, that awe, that wonder, that curiosity. Because, I mean, the most peaceful, tranquil, therapeutic times for me is when I'm watching my kids play. And they're discovering and they're tweaking and they're asking and they're curious. And why is this that? And why is that this? And um, it's been such a bonus as a father being able to do that. It really is a bonus where you you see see life, you see your world through new eyes, rediscovery, just going by what they're saying. So thank you for allowing me to get personal because I'm always just curious when, um, especially my, my, my coach guests, it's like, you know, how do you, how do you put your kids on that path to think about thinking? And I love, I love that you said, well, listen, I'm not going to tell them this, you know, I'm going to be honest, but you know, that's my belief and I'm, that, that you're going to shape more their curiosity, that they're, they have the ability to ask questions instead of just saying, this is this, that is that, you know, you're allowing that curiosity, that wonder, that awe to thrive through their questions and what they see in the world. Yeah. There's nothing better to see your kid child um make a connection and it's all over their face where they kind of figured something out that's like the big the big thing but i would also say you know discipline is very important in our house too so it's Mm -hmm. more of like we've got the rules on the way things you should behave Mm -hmm. but part of that behavior is asking really good questions and i'll give you all the time in the world to ask any types of questions absolutely yeah thank you for sharing um so in terms of the book, Jim, can you give us an overview of what a reader would find in there? I have chapter titles. You don't have to go through all of them, but what's the kind of journey that you're taking the reader on as you go through your book? How's it structured? Yeah. So really, I, the way I structured it is to bring people on the arc of change management, right? And how do you, I mean, if we put the lens on it of how do you prepare for change when you don't know what change is coming? It's a very different kind of way to prepare because Obviously, you don't know what's around the bend. Mm-hmm. And so when we take a look at change, I put it into four almost categories, four sections. One is awareness. We are aware that change is happening. We can feel it. We, change is happening in the workplace. Change is happening at home. Changes. Your kids are tweeting new emojis. You've got you know unrest on the television. The workplace is doing layoffs. Like changes yeah. constantly, and it piles up across the board. And you have to. You don't. You think of it in these little kind of buckets but they are piled up one on top of the other on top of the other. So there really is no work-life balance. It's all kind of in the same. So we're Mm -hmm. aware that things are changing. And the feeling that we have is that it's changing faster than we can adapt. And we have this fear of being left behind. And that's kind of my belief on the big stress that comes with change and fundamental crazy change from AI all the way down to, you know, anything else is, um, we're going to be left behind. We're going to be left irrelevant. And what do I do if I'm left irrelevant? Where do I go? So that's kind of the awareness of the change that's happening, but also the feelings we have inside, the stress we have and, and all of that. So from awareness, then you go, all right, well, how do you prepare? We're aware that change happens and is happening at the same time. So how do we prepare? And I put that into three big categories, almost like you're preparing to go to battle. You've got to do your physical preparation, your mental preparation, and I, I put down your social preparation. So a lot of people think of spiritual, but I put that under mental, and I'll talk about those three in a minute. Okay. From there, you go uh, from preparing, you go into learning, which I kind of rewrote what I thought about humility and what does vulnerability really mean and how many poor assumptions I had and how do I change my mindset on learning. And from there, I take it to phase four, which is wisdom. And that's ultimately what we're looking for today is 
how do we make good decisions? Plans are kind of out the window. We can have hopes and dreams, but how do you make effective decisions in the moment? Because change is going to disrupt any plan that you have. So we have to fill that big kind of uh, utility of how do you make really, really good decisions. And that comes from the proper preparation, from the proper belief system, the proper learning, so that you're comfortable making decisions. And after those decisions are made, the cycle restarts. Awareness. Perhaps yeah, it's amazing how with things like this, Jim, um, uh, uh, an author I just spoke to uh, had written a book about burnout. So we were talking about that. But it's like this. I love the fact that you set it up as utility. You set it up as tools. You set it up as preparation because so much of like what you said, you have all these little things piling on day to day. And I don't think you're talking about big, massive changes only. You know, there are little things throughout the day that pile on throughout our weeks. Uh, we got kids, you got education, you got work, you got business. Um, but I love the way that it's set up in terms of getting your mindset right across all those different areas, the physical as well, because it's not just the mental game, but the physical as well. But I, I, I very much appreciate that it is preparation instead of waiting for something to happen and reacting, even with the best of intentions, even with the best of education, information that's nothing without really crafting a plan. Um, and people may say, well, I can't see what's coming. So how do I prepare? Obviously your book would get into that, but I think it's so important. And I, I mentioned this in the previous uh, interview, it's like, you know, muscle memory, the more you prepare, the more you read in this mindset of preparation, when it happens, you know, you have that kind of emotional intelligence to kind of step back and say, okay, some shit is about to hit the fan or it, it is hitting the fan. Let me go back to my tools and, and adjust adapt and uh move forward accordingly yeah it's um the analogy i like to use and i put it in the book is from moneyball if you've ever seen the movie or read the book yep um and for those who haven't it's about the oakland a's baseball team where they were competing or trying to compete but they would get a really good baseball player and a team like the yankees would come in and buy them so the a's would never really be able to compete so they said we have to think about things differently and as they were thinking about these really good hitters who would hit the occasional home run, you get a lot more singles in a baseball game. And so they said, how do we build our team with someone so that we can get as many people on third base as possible so that when the much more frequent single gets hit, it scores a run because runs are what matters. Mm -hmm. And so the first person who gets a single is sitting on first base. But if you hit a single and someone's already on third, it's the exact same hit, but you're also scoring a run. And so how do you set yourself up to always have somebody on third so that whenever a change hits, you're just ready to kind of score one across the, the plate and get ready to move on to the next possible thing? So what do you, what do you how do you transfer that to this then about so, putting yourself in that best position? So when something when that opportunity presents itself or um, threat, maybe you can move. How would you how would you translate that money ball lesson into? into the real life yeah so when i go um when i think about getting someone on third right we're, we're hitting singles all the time but how do you get someone on third and I, I put it into the three categories of so when we think about physical wellness you got your diet your fitness your sleep everybody knows it everybody we ignore it but we all know it mm. so i don't like i'm not going to get into that here but yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but we know the food you eat impacts the ability to think we know that there's gut bacteria work that goes into your brain and all that kind of stuff. And, mm -hmm. um, and so it's valid. So you're supposed to work out every day. You're supposed to eat right. You know what you're supposed to eat. We just still want to eat crumb cake 
and then there's you know, the sleep, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which you know we got to get our sleep and everything else. So that's so physically, your physical wellness has significant impact on your ability to make decisions. So that's one. Two is the mental wellness, the mental health, and I put that into three categories. That is your self love, your self care, and your belief system. So the the things that I'll put into that is self love. My favorite quote. Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote in his confessions, how can anyone be satisfied in life if they aren't satisfied with the one person they can never be separated from? Mm. And that was a nice kind of eye opener for me where we're so focused on the external and, and will we be accepted and will other people look that we've never done the work to just accept ourselves. And that was a big problem a lot of people had in the pandemic. They were forced to have these inside conversations and they weren't ready to do that. It's scary so, as hell. And and what's that? It's scary as hell. It's scary as hell. It, to have that conversation, because I'm somebody that's, you know, introverted, as I mentioned. So I'm always thinking and overthinking and this and that. But then when the pandemic hits and it changes your circumstances. So even for somebody that never got it perfect, but was very much self-aware, the pandemic just even. So what I mean to say is even if you are self-aware and you're 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 thinking about yourself all the time, uh, you know, what you're doing, what you're not doing, what's working, what isn't working, overthinking. Even somebody like that, I mean, the pandemic hits and it, it's out of left. Like you just don't, I, I've mentioned here, yeah, my, my mental health took a hit. So um, yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's why we saw drinking go through the roof because people didn't know how to handle it. And the reason we don't like talking to ourselves is we know all of our failures, hopes, dreams missed. Uh, the the fears that we didn't want to try this or I, I wanted to attempt this and I didn't or I attempted this and I failed. Mm -hmm. um, we know all of those deep, dark secrets. And uh, there was an author, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who once said, everyone's got three lives. They've got a public life, they've got a private life, and they've got a secret life. Yeah. I love and you're that the point. only one who knows the secret life. Yeah. Um, and until you wrestle with that and are okay with that, then the rest of it's almost a moot point. I mean, self-love is one of the first things. And I come from corporate and finance. The word love, you just don't use. But you know, as you go into the coaching world and you see the self-love thing, is there's, there's validity to it. There's a reality mm -hmm. to it. And we have to embrace who we are and we have to have a conversation with ourselves. And uh, there are, and I'm guilty of it too, right? It's a lot of the things that we should be doing and I hate doing that. But I had to have very deep, uh, hardcore conversations on what are my expectations of myself? And am I really living up to them? And the answer was no. And okay. why am I not living up to these expectations? And what changes do I have to make? And we have to have these really difficult conversations with ourselves. And that's part of self-care. I would say that's part of self-care is to force ourselves to have these types of conversations, to say, how do we raise our expectations of ourselves so that we can actually hit it? Um, you know, the Kennedy quote, we don't aim high enough is, is pretty valid. And so when we talk about the mental wellness that we have to do in order to prepare, it's the self-love, the self-care. And then, of course, that belief system, which we talked about before, is what do you actually believe so that you can interact with other people and, and get those new perspectives so that you can challenge the way that you think and get excited about living and being and doing all of those types mm -hmm. of things and new projects and learning. And that's why people love being an entrepreneur. Because yeah. you're learning something new. You're not just repeating back the same corporate BS. You're sitting there learning and, and creating and doing something that's really, really exciting. So you said the physical, the mental, what was the other component? And then the social. And so most people do physical, mental, spiritual, 
I put spiritual under the belief system in terms of what do you believe? And I think that's very important, whether regardless of organized religion or not, whatever you believe, that's kind mm -hmm. of, there is a spiritual aspect. There's probably something bigger than us. Nobody knows what it is and that's fine. So when I go to social, and this was incredibly, this took a major hit in the pandemic, is there's three categories of social. One is we need a support system. Is it a spouse? Is it your family? Is it your kids? Is it your friends? Who is your support system that you can share your hopes and dreams with? Who will be your champion? Will support you whatever you need. Those are people that we absolutely need in our lives. Then there's two other types. One is uh, we need new experiences. I call them newbies. Who are the new people we're meeting? These people are meant to challenge the way that mm. we're not just find people who are in our little echo chamber of what's important. Yeah. Let's get out and meet new people to challenge our belief system so that we could see we're part of something bigger to question our beliefs so that we can think and learn to think and send us down that kind of rabbit hole of why do I believe what I believe? And that's a very important aspect of just being part of the general human race. And then finally, the third one is micro interactions so that we know we're part of a bigger world, the librarian, the bus driver, the people on the train, who is it that you're interacting? Just, you know, you don't need something deep but <laughs> interacting with these people to see that there's other people in this world and we need to act and behave in a way that's really beneficial for all of them. Man, those two, those last two are, are huge. Um, Cause I've seen so many people frustrated, whether professionally or socially. And so many times it has to do with them just living in that same echo chamber. Um, maybe there's somebody that's creative. Maybe they want to be an entrepreneur. Maybe they want to do whatever, but because they're in this echo chamber of, of people they've always known, nothing against those people, but yep. they give up on what it is they want because they don't have that support system that you're talking about. But I think people need to recognize the value of just stepping outside. It's, it's a cliche, but stepping outside of that comfort zone because nothing happens there. Um, you know, you have your friendships, whoever it may be, but I just seen too many people forfeit what it is they want because they, they felt safer staying in those, those communities, um, whoever they were. And then, like you said, those, those micro moments, um, I think part of what has helped me the last couple of years is just taking advantage of those little moments, even with somebody that you're never going to see again, which is amazing. Like if you can find commonality and laugh with somebody you don't even know and make their day and it just sets up a ripple effect for both them and you. I mean, there's so many powerful moments that you can have. Um, like you said, especially clarifying, you don't have to have a deep conversation, but just like a, a moment of humanity. I see you, you see me, you know, this is going wrong for both of us or this worked out for both of us. You know, you'll never see them again, but there's power in just that kind of camaraderie of those, those little moments in life. Absolutely. And you know, when you sit, we, we've been trained our whole lives to be right. Mm. And our echo chambers remind us that we're right. So it's incredibly safe. And so that's why we like it. But in actuality, we don't have to be right. It's not the point to be right. What we're looking to do is how do we challenge our beliefs? And, and the micro interactions do that. The new interactions do that. And just those little things put you on a different tra trajectory. Those little conversations you have. I remember right after I launched my business, I was going to do a client thing in Switzerland. And I walk into the lounge at Newark Airport and the woman was checking me in. And she asked me if I was a writer. And I said, no, I'm not a writer. And she said, well, whatever it is, you look like you're walking your purpose. And I just launched my business. And I was like, this is amazing. This is, and that was yeah. eight years ago. I live with that. I go back to that moment constantly. I'm just a little, I have no idea who she is. I'll never see her again. 
don't even know her name. Um, but it just like put me on this whole kind of, I was sky high for that whole client trip. Um, and it's those little things, you, we get real benefit from it if you're open to it. And then you have to be welcoming to it. And you have to bring your best to get the best out of other people. And so those micro interactions are, are really powerful. They are. It's just, it's, it's insane. If you can find some kind of com commonality or just, you know, uh, a compliment, she saw that she made an observation she shared and, um, you know, you go back to it years later, you still go back to that moment. It pumped you up on your trip out, you know? Um, yeah, it just, I, I've, I've, I always did that, but I just recognized during the pandemic just how fruitful and important it is to, to both people. Um, there is no expectation of anything in return, just kind of sharing in the moment. Um, moments just like that, that's huge. Yeah, and, and you have the ability, um, you know, you go to the supermarket or you go anywhere else, you've got these little micro interactions with people. Everybody is stressed out, freaked out, everything else, where you know, two stressed out people button heads in one particular moment is going to end poorly. And so just keeping that mindset of, you know, um, you know, micro interactions all around and, and doing that, no matter what problem you've got going on at home or at work or anything else, there is a, uh, it's a bigger world and these people are irrelevant to your problems. Yeah. And so we do have just kind of a bigger, uh, a bigger world that we're, we're taking part in. And I mean, they're free. It costs yeah. nothing. It, it yeah. costs nothing just to to have somebody feel like they're seen that, you know, you understand what they're going through in this moment or you can share a laugh. So I love that you include, I don't think I've heard that anywhere else really that I, that I've read that comes to mind, but as one of like the pillars of the, of a, whatever section, just those micro interactions that you have. Um, I'm sorry. So what else about the, the book, uh, that journey that you take the reader on? Jim? So that's, so those three were preparation. So you've got your awareness. We know the change is happening faster than we can adapt. We're preparing now. We've got our physical, mm -hmm. our mental, and our social. So now we get into learning. And learning is, you know, the learning mindset that everybody talks about, but we have to learn how to define it for ourselves. And so I cover things like vulnerability and confidence and humility and all of those things that you're supposed to be. Um, but I had a lot of awareness work when I was uh, working through this chapter of just effectively being teachable is... You know, I, I had a complete misinterpretation of what humility was. I had one chapter called Be Humble, and I wrote it. And I said, this is absolute garbage. And I, I, I almost say, don't be humble in the book, is we have a complete misunderstanding of what humility is. I have so many clients who wanted to take credit for things, but they didn't because they said, oh, I wanted to be humble. Mm. And we tell people to be humble. And we're very preachy about being humble. But what we're basically telling them is stop being an arrogant ass. And that's not humility. Humility, by definition, is to be uh, deferential, right? It's a very religious term, you know, be deferral, be deferential to something bigger like God or something like that. So when people tell you to be humble in the workplace, they're telling you to be deferential. Someone else is going to take credit for your work. And so how do you be a learner and take credit and be proud of the things that you're accomplishing? Be proud of the things that you want to try and attempt and, and take ownership of those types of things. That's the type of learning so that when you share with someone, your support system or someone else. This is my accountability, my ownership of something that I wish to do or that I, I'm so proud of. Yeah. Who are those people who are going to be your champions and, and cheer you on? And there's a big vulnerability and social risk to that that might be rejected. And that's why we don't go into that. We don't really fear failure. We fear what people are going to think if we fail. 
And so yeah. there, there's a big social aspect to this in terms of how do we become teachable, be a learner of what it is I want to accomplish and use the people around you and, and the, the cognitive ability that we've built up to get to whatever that, that target's going to be. Yeah, it's amazing how, how, how many times, how often people shortchange themselves because they don't want to take credit for something because they, they, they feel like there's that fine. And there can be like that fine line between being arrogant and, and knowing your values, stepping up, being proud. Um, but it all goes back to communication. It's like you can feel those things. You can know, you can know yourself, the value you provide. You just got to be sure you pick the right words to communicate because you pick the wrong word and that that line between you know very valuable knows their worth and arrogant is very thin if you pick the wrong words but it's amazing how often we shortchange and us uh, underestimate ourselves yeah and it's another thing that's so incredibly subjective right what's confident to one person is arrogant to another yeah and uh, i heard someone tell me once the difference between confidence and arrogance is follow through and it's a nice way to to think about you know if you're going to make a commitment or a promise Mm -hmm. or or state that you're going to be able to do something the only difference between confidence and arrogance is actually doing it um and it's our obligation then to say yeah i committed to this and i'm going to follow through and i'm going to make sure that you know i finish what i started yeah delivering yeah so, so what's what's the next step then and then the final step is wisdom so as we go you know humility taking credit for everything you do accountability for your decisions ultimately what the new economy is requiring us to do is to make really good decisions in the moment because every change that comes we could call it pivoting i don't like the pivot term but that's ultimately it we have to make decisions we have to make them quickly because as things change so quickly if you don't make decisions you're going to be left behind it may be the right or wrong decision but you have to make a decision and it puts you on a different path most decisions are fairly irrelevant yet we're completely frozen about the fact that we have to make a decision but most of them are really irrelevant. It just starts a new path and a different step, and you can undo a lot of your decisions and everything else. Um, but decision-making is really the, the differentiator for the new economy and where we're going to be from this year and beyond is, yes, you can have a vision, but the only way you're going to get to that vision is to make decisions in the moment, the right types of decisions to tie back to whatever that big picture is going to be. And so when we think about awareness and you've prepared and we've learned, the best way to make a decision is to ask really good questions. And I ask most of my clients, you know, what is the definition of a question? And most people can't answer. I'll ask you, what's the definition of a question? Uh, <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, no, that's, that's, I don't think I've gotten that question before. And so the definition of a question is a request for information where you legitimately do not know the answer. And so my favorite question, which I learned at the Columbia program was tell me more. Mm -hmm. Doesn't even have a question mark, but most of our questions come with judgments and assumptions. Yeah. And so as we think about making our decisions, we have to shed with things changing so quickly. How do we shed every uh, judgment and assumption we have from 20 years ago that's impacting our ability to make decisions today? Mm -hmm. What are the re what's the relevant information that we need to get today from an objective standpoint? And the only way we can get that is to ask a very non-judgmental question in terms of, you know, what are we looking to accomplish? What's relevant today? Bring the people around you that need to help you make that decision. And you can do it very quickly. 
when you get to learn how to ask really, really good questions. Yeah, I mean, we already we already have profiles set up of everybody around us, our, different environments, what we're good at, what we're not good at. We already have preconceived notions. You know what I mean? So even if you ask somebody a question, you, sometimes you already know whether or not you're going to believe them or how you're going to come back. You're not listening. You're, you're just listening to, to reply instead of really learning. So that abs- that makes absolute sense. Um, and then, yeah, just wisdom. What is uh, just one question before we move on to the the next um, section of the of the episode? What um, I don't know how to phrase this question. How do you? I guess how do you work? Just in general, don't have to go too in, too far into detail. But how do you? How do your clients shape that wisdom? How, how do they go about sharing their knowledge or their thought leadership based on what what they've learned? Um, how do you get them to practice that? So we usually start small um, and we do this a lot in workshops. The best, the, the best kind of work I get with this is creating a belief system in a workshop and having people articulate and creating by example, the foundation of how do you create an environment where people are able to share their experiences and everything else. One of the favorite, one of my favorite ways to do it. And this was from a book um, called the art of the focus conversation. It's a framework called the ORID framework on how to, um, come to a decision with a team using four sets of questions where you legitimately do not know the answer. The first is objective questions. What are we looking to accomplish today? Everyone can answer that, right? Everyone, this is what we're looking to accomplish in this moment today, in this meeting, objectively, this is another objective questions. Then we go into reflective. What have we done before? Or has anyone experienced something like this before? Draw on that experience and how does that inform our decision today? The next question is interpretive. What does that mean for us today? And then finally, decisional. What what are the decisions we have to make today? So you bring people almost through this arc of questions. And when my clients practice this, we practice it in our meetings, but then Mm -hmm. I have them do it with their teams or one-on-one meetings where you say, all right, decisions got to be made. They identify the the meeting where they're going to try it and tip it out. Sometimes it works really well, sometimes not. And we go through what did we learn? But that's a really good, ultimately, wisdom and decision-making comes down to asking good questions up to that decision moment. And so these are ways that these are, and these are simple, non-assumptive, non-judgmental questions, which is disarming. Nobody's got to be defensive in Mm -hmm. answering it where you say, Oh, John, have you ever dealt with something like this before? Tell me about it. That is a completely request for information. It's completely yours because it's your experience. And you say, all right, now we could go into how does, how does that impact us today? Yeah, I think that's huge. I love the fact that wisdom is like the last section in your book because wisdom is, it would solve a lot of problems just because to me, wisdom is just confidence in what you know, confidence in what you believe. It doesn't mean you're pushing it on to somebody else, but in the context of like the political divide that we talked about a, a few minutes ago or 20 minutes ago, however long, it's to me, wisdom is knowing what you know. So if somebody brings you something, you can share with them, but if if they share something with you, you don't feel threatened because you know what you know, um, and you know what you don't know. So there's wisdom in saying, "No, I, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'd love to learn." So I love the fact that wisdom is that last piece because it is really a guard against ego. Because it's like, listen, you've prepared, you've done your physical, your mental, everything, your social, um, you're asking the right question. So when someone comes to you. You have, you've collected all your information, your responses, 
whatever they're coming at you with, you know what you believe about that. No one can take it away from you. You know what I mean? Because the opposite of that is just that you believe it's a zero sum game. That somebody that for somebody else to have something means you lose. Where too often that's not the case. Um, when it really comes down to it. Um, but I, I I appreciate that wisdom is that last piece because I, I think it's powerful for people to know that they can open up and nothing gets taken away from them uh, as easily as they may have originally feared before reading your book. Yeah, and it's you know I like what you said there. It's also confidence in what you don't know. Right. And there's, yeah. there's, there is a lot that's possible without you. And it goes back to the vulnerability aspect. Uh, most of us don't really define vulnerability in any kind of real meaningful way. We know we're supposed to be vulnerable, but what does that actually mean? It sounds so weak, but I would yeah. say vulnerability is being open to the possibility that you don't have the answer and that you don't know. And when we think about it, and I'm sure everyone can probably think of their most effective leaders that they've worked with that is probably an attribute that they've had where they've asked really good questions or were comfortable in their own skin saying, I don't know the answer to that or who can give me the best information to help me make this decision rather than trying to create some kind of answer that ends up not working because it was misinformed and didn't have the full context. And when you get up to a certain level in an organization, you're thinking enterprise wide, you're thinking uh, industry wide and five years in the future, you don't have the context to make these little decisions. So you need that vulnerability to say, who can give me the best context in the moment to help me make this decision? Yeah, I would implore anybody watching and listening just to, if you haven't already thought about that, vulnerability in the leaders that you've worked with, somebody who's just like, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Let's look into it. Versus a leader that's like, uh, yeah, I know, or they they make a decision in the moment and it turns out being the wrong one and you know whatever, there's ways of fixing it. But I would implore everybody to think about those leaders that said, yeah, I'm not sure about that. But for me, a leader is like the master facilitator. He's going to go and, and communicate and get what he or she needs um, if they don't have the answers. Like they're they're guiding through questions. So, again, implore anybody to go back and just see an example in their past of a leader that didn't have all the answers. And, and did you feel scared that they didn't? Did you feel concerned that they didn't? Chances are you're like shit, this person is open. I love that they're showing that um, they don't have all the answers. They don't have all the control, that it's okay to be curious because they're they're providing an example for other people to open up about what they don't know. And maybe we can avoid hiccups and problems down the road because we've seen this person say, I don't have all the answers. So no one's going to pretend to hold the, the, the cards to their chest, pretending that they have everything everybody's more open. I love that the most. It's just the ripple effect of that example on other people when you see leaders who are like that, in fact. Yeah, when we're able to imagine, and I, I go through this exercise with clients sometimes, is you know, create a superhero of the executive you wish to be. Hmm. We want to pull the humor of this executive and the patience of this executive and the questionability of this executive. And you can almost piece together because we've all worked with incredible executives. Hmm. And there were things we admired and wished we had. And if we take the time to say, you know what, what made them that way? And is there a way that that can manifest in me? And that takes practice and that yeah. takes a lot of reflection and and um, and it's really impactful when you're able to do it. Jim, I'm curious in writing the book, what lessons did you take away from it? Whether it was some authors have mentioned the writing process itself, um, you know, three o'clock in the morning, as you said. Uh, and you have shared examples where your, your, your idea of something evolved, but are there any other major takeaways that you received or got 
from writing this book, things that may have changed you or, or may have caused you to look at something differently just based on that writing process uh, or the entire process from yeah. uh, ideating to, to publishing? Yeah. It, um, you know, when you write a book, it forces you to articulate what it is you really think and believe. And that was, it's a difficult process, right? To say, you know what? I wrote this sentence. This is not what I really believe. It's what I should say, but it's not what I want to say. Um, and so we've got almost the person we are, the person we wish to be, and the person we're supposed to be. And so when we write a book that we want to be proud of, we have to write it from our actual voice, not what somebody mm -hmm. else is telling us to do. And so that was, you know, the humility chapter was a perfect example. Um, but it also helped me formulate my process in terms of responding to change to say, look, something's off right now. What is it? Is it physical? Is it mental? Is it social? I haven't been out with people in a long time, or maybe I'll work out of the library today, or maybe I'll work out of the city today or something like that. And so all that, the other thing is not just the writing process. Um, it's a very vulnerable exercise to create something and put it out to the world stress inducing. Um, and so there were so many moments where I just really didn't want to do some of these things. Like I sent notes to some executives and great people that I've worked with in the past or I knew and asked them to give me a quote for the book. And it's so, you know, do I actually send this note to this person and will they respond? And they were all very gracious to do it. It was fantastic. Yeah. So there is like this butterfly in your stomach kind of, I need help. Will you help me? And I've created this and I'll put this out and I hope people like it. And you're you're opening yourself up to criticism or to rejection and that's probably the hardest part of writing a book or doing a podcast or creating anything is opening yourself up to that and uh fortunately it's not as bad as it's never as bad as we think it's going to be so that's yeah. um but that's a it's almost like a big hurdle to get through in terms of who you want to be as a person and an individual and putting stuff out into the world to get things back um, you actually have to take action to do it. And so there is an accountability risk that comes yeah. with it. And it's one that you you have to experience in order to make it work. Yeah, it's amazing. You just mentioned it, but it's amazing how things that we fear, things that we're anxious about, I've realized more and more just how much that fear and anxiety, the intangible sensation that you feel leading up to something or whatever it may be, is like 10 times worse than anything that actually plays out you know it's like one time out of ten something actually happens that's worse but all that all that sensation all that tension all that anxiety all that stress everything that you feel fear and then when something happens you're just like okay i'll deal with it but it's amazing what that lead up can do to you um that's another great lesson i wish people would would keep in mind is like how often have things actually played out as severely as you thought they were going to play out yeah. And you could probably apply it to anything in life, any particular situation. It's never as good as you expected it to be. Yeah. Ron told me that one time. And I said, you're probably right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I read somewhere, maybe it was Harvard Business Review or somewhere else, like a study of like people that their teams make it to the Super Bowl or whatever, you know, championship game. And, you know, it feels amazing. But then afterwards, it's just kind of like you drop off. Like, right. And it and it plays exactly what you said. The 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 good is never as good as you think it's going to be. The same with the bad. What do you think is next for your writing, Jim? 
Uh, I've, I've got three more book ideas. Okay. Um, and so I'm excited. I'm doing a lot of different things in terms of how do I best get information out to clients. And so um, I've got my next three book ideas kind of queued up that I want to write. Finding the time is going to be a challenge. I don't have a pandemic to help me. So, um, so that'll be a lot of uh, playing work. But then I'm also doing, you know, non-writing things. I'm launching a new um, series with executives. Uh, I'm tired of the webinars that coaches do. Nobody signs up for them. They're not very good. And so I created something called Not a Webinar, uh, Candidate Executive Insights. So it's going to be live networking in person, but also a live broadcast with an audience with executives I know that are doing really good things. All the things we talk about are what people awesome. should be doing. Let's get the executives that are actually doing it. And so the first one's with uh, Bess Freeman. She's CEO of Brown Harris Stevens in New York. It's a large real estate firm. And this one's going to be uh, it's going to be good. We got some good guests queued up. So that's going to be fun. Is that going to be like a, is it like a live stream thing you're going to do? Yeah, it'll be live streamed. It'll be recorded. We've got the nice three camera thing set up. You know, I'm, I'm going to make, Dev, give David Letterman a, a run for his money. And then, uh, and then we've got in person, people could join in person and, and join the audience. Awesome. Um, do you have that? Well, actually I'll get into the details in a bit. Um, I guess in wrapping up, is there, What's, what's the lesson you want people to take away from this book? If you could package it into like a concise statement, um, what is the, what's the urgency in the book that you want for people to take up and really infuse into their lives and careers? You lie in the bed you make. It's, um, you know, we could talk about change all we want and we could be frustrated about it and we can do everything. Um, but ultimately how we respond to change is our responsibility as an individual. And it comes down to, are you being physically active and getting your sleep and eating right? Are you taking care of yourself mentally? And do you have a social network in place? These are all things. It's like saving for retirement. Nobody does it until it's too late. Mm. The people who are able to do this and get these, you know, three buckets in line. Layoffs happen in your company. You've got your social network in place. They're going to get you a new job. You've got, you know, this change happens. You can kind of have the conversation with yourself mentally to say, you know what? I am in a decent place and I'm going to be able to handle this. Uh, physically, you know, you're getting your sleep, you're getting everything, you're going to be making good decisions in the moment. And so those are, it's our responsibility to respond to macro change in our particular way. Nobody else can do it for us. And this is, this is really a framework to help us do that. Yeah. I'll pick up Jim's book because I want to see the details in it. Um, obviously this episode was an overview, but I can, I can vouch for just those three things on my own, you know, changes that I've had to deal with. Um, but the physical, just getting serious on new year's based on a call from the doctor, um, people asking, how are you so committed to your fitness? I'm like, I, I want to get it done. So, and just that the physical has its ripple effects of positivity throughout the rest of your, your, your life, the mental really sitting back and thinking about what I want, same thing prepared, you know, and it's ugly, Jim, it really is ugly. It's amazing what, uh, that we talked about that because it is scary as hell. It's so scary. And it's, um, it's, I did a podcast once on what I did an Ironman and what it taught me about a dark place and we go into dark places and how do we get ourselves out of being in a dark place? And, um, the pandemic, a lot of people were in a lot of dark places and, um, and we've all been in very dark places. And so, um, we can't wait for somebody to take us out of our dark place. We've got to lay the groundwork so that we can kind of climb that ladder ourselves. And then the social part, I mean, I consider even these conversations fall into that bucket. Um, 
just reaching out to people that are doing great things, having great conversations with them, uh, with me, sharing, you know, your life and your work and, and what you're passionate about. Even just that, it just kind of reminds me that there is, like you said, um, this bigger world out there. When you, it, it's weird, like when you see that there is a bigger world out there, and you gave that example, um, it really does show us that we're valuable, yes, but like our lives are, you know, just a small piece of this greater machine that we're a part of. So, just to vouch for what you've shared about the physical, the mental, and the social, it just it does wonders when you really step up because it is work. The physical, obviously. Um, the mental, obviously, it's it's you're fighting your greatest enemy when you go down that mental path. There's nobody in your life that can harm you the way you can. And I've, I've seen that. I've heard stories from other people. And then the social, I mean, you just got to get out there and, and create these new connections, um, find commonality with, with your fellow humans. So thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. No, thank you. This has been, uh, it's a journey. It's a fun one. And it's, uh, it's a fruitful one and a good one to go on. Yeah. Yeah, people got to remember like the journey is, you know, you might need your map and your tools and your this and that. It's going to be work. But the journey, I think we just wait too much for like the end result. We want instant gratification where I've learned over the pandemic that the journey is just as valuable. I don't even have like hard goals anymore. I just have, OK, generally, this is where I want to be. This is more important to me now is these moments, even those micro moments making the most of that trip instead of waiting for some delayed gratification or reward in the future. Right. There's you, you can mesh all of them into one and you know, it's like the old saying, everything is now. Yeah. That, uh, it's relevant. All right. So this last question, this is where your live streaming event may fall is, uh, and what I was going to ask was, uh, is information already out there that you'd want me to share with people or anything you want to share now about either that event or anything else you have coming up? Sure. Yeah. It's, um, the website, bellwetherhub.com and jimfrawley.com have it all. We've got the Candid Executive Insights, not a webinar. Best Freeman's our first guest. I've got seven others that are going to be queued up this year. It's going to be, they're really, really good. Um, I'm doing a TEDx event in Downpatrick, Northern Ireland. That's nice. at the end of March. And all the events and good things going on are, are on the website. So, And more books to come. Absolutely. Jim, thank you so much for sitting down with me for this conversation. Again, Jim's book is Adapting in Motion, Finding Your Place in the New Economy. Uh, I really appreciate it. There are similar conversations that you can have with different people, but there's just, you know, like we talked about speaking, your unique voice, your the words you use, the urgency you have, everybody's just so different. So I love talking to all of my, my guests about just their experience, especially when they're writing as well. So thank you, and I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. If there's anything I might have missed, uh, questions I should have asked that you think I should have asked, um, we're limited on time. I could have kept going with Jim and dragging him down different tangents, but please reach out to me and I'll reach out to him to see if he can respond to any questions that may come up. But in the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching and I'll see you in the next episode. Take care.